Welcome to our Sunday service at Regeneration. It's Palm Sunday. Um, a little bit off of the chronology in regards to what we're going to be talking about. If you do want to hear more about Palm Sunday, you can go back into our archives to uh, pull up messages, sermons from that time. But this morning we're going to be looking at the criminals on either side of Jesus. Uh, the text for today is Luke chapter 23, verses 32 through 43. And as we continue on this Lenten series, we'll be looking at Jesus through the eyes of these criminals who were on either side of Jesus, as well as a surprise one at the end of the message. And for the past three weeks, um, it has been really great to hear from Mike and Chris uh, during this series. Thank you, Mike, Regeneration's newest elder, for sharing with us about Jesus through the eyes of Pilate, three Weeks ago, thank you, Chris, our student ministries director, for sharing with us through the eyes of Simon of Cyrene two weeks ago and the Roman soldiers and the centurion last week. As we continue looking more closely at Jesus through the eyes of various characters on the road to the cross, today we come across these criminals who were crucified on either side of Jesus. And these men are mentioned in other gospel accounts, but the Gospel of Luke gives us the most information regarding this account, so we're going to use that as our text for today. So starting in verse 32 of Luke 23, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him, and when they came to the place that is called the skull, they were crucified, and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. A lot of characters we've read about so far, and Jesus is at the center of this execution with Criminals crucified on each side of him. There are the soldiers who crucified all three of these men, including a centurion who oversaw this execution. There were many people who witnessed these murders who were in the audience, most of them strangers, but some of them friends and family. And there was also a group of people who had a particular interest to be at this execution, and it was the rulers of the Jews. These people who falsely accused Jesus of wrongdoing and pushed for capital punishment of an innocent man who scoffed at Jesus saying, he saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. And you see that these people, they have these foul hearts and they have these rotten words as do the soldiers. Pilate was not innocent of the mockery either because he was the one responsible for the inscription over Jesus. Let's continue on in Luke 23, starting in verse 36. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. Then we get to the criminals in verse 39, but before we read the rest of the verses we're, we're looking at today, what did Jesus say in verse 34? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now let's go to verse 39, and then I want to point something out. 
Verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. So Jesus said to God the Father, Father, forgive them. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. And all the while, everyone else is scoffing, mocking, railing at Jesus to save himself. And so three times Jesus is scoffed at, mocked at, railed at about saving himself. The first one in verse 35, the ruler scoffed at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The second one in verse 36, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine, 37, and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And then the third one, verse 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. The thing is that Jesus set out to save everyone. Father, forgive them. Forgive them. But no one sees this. Not even his own disciples at this point see this. Not even the religious leaders who should see this. They're scoffing, they're mocking, they're railing. And there's this spectrum of feelings from everyone else. From indifference to empathy. Except for one. And it's one of the criminals. He, he seems to understand this moment. Verse 40. But the other rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. One of the criminals realizes that he is receiving what he deserves. As we look at Jesus through these criminals' eyes, we're also going to be able to see these criminals through Jesus' eyes, a very different perspective than what most of those present at these men's crucifixion saw. What most of those in the audience saw was the suffering and the spectacle of this entire murder. The hope through our Lenten series is that we see Jesus not as everyone else sees him, but through the eyes of the many characters who were part of the passion. The point of our Lenten series is not to draw sympathy to Jesus, but to point toward Christ, the one who is doing the work of God. And part of the way to see Jesus Christ doing the work of God is to realize how shocking it is to find Jesus crucified in between two criminals. And I think we've just lost that shock factor of the cross. Actually, it's just the very noun cross and the very verb crucify those were huge deterrents for people to to come to the christian faith to just hear that noun cross and to hear that verb crucify in the first second and third century churches that that was just repelling to people 
back then. You know, today we Christians, we find the good news of the cross amazing. And when we say cross, it doesn't give us this sort of negative, repelling reaction. But you need to put yourself in the shoes of the first, second, third century Christian church. And actually, you can even put yourself where we're at today. Because how often do we mention the cross when we share the gospel? And it would be much like the first, second, third, first century churches where saying the word cross or saying the word crucify would be repelling. When we hear messages, sermons, teachings from Christians, how often do we even hear about the cross? And when you share the gospel, how often do you bring up the cross if you share the gospel at all? If you've been listening to the sermons, the the teachings, the messages from a Christian preacher, teacher, the cross needs to come up at some point. And if you've been listening to a particular person for quite a while and they haven't shared that Jesus died on the cross, there's a huge problem. Because this is a central teaching that needs to be shared. If it is not shared, that particular person teaching, preaching, is not teaching the Christian gospel. That person is a false teacher. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now going back to the first, second, second, third century church, it was just utter foolishness to follow someone who was sentenced to crucifixion by the Romans. You read any historical literature dating back to that time, and it would be complete madness to follow someone who was crucified. Jews thought it would be insane to follow someone who died on the cross. It's just sheer lunacy. Why? Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 21, starting in verse 22. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So you see why it would be so difficult for people to come to grips with Christ, especially if you had a Jewish background. Yet Jesus committed no crime, but he paid for our crime through his death. He received our curse as he was on that cross. Now, now this passage does not refer to crucifixion because the Jews didn't practice it, but there is a parallel in Deuteronomy to hanging on a tree or a wooden post of the corpse of the one executed. And in the New Testament, a cross was often referred to as a tree. And in the thinking of ancient Israel, there was something worse than being put to death. Worse than being put to death was to have your corpse left in the open, exposed to humiliation, 
shame and the scavenging animals and birds and insects. Hanging on a tree is not just the idea of death, but of the corpse being exposed to the elements and facing the highest disgrace imaginable in that context. Typically, Romans had no problem leaving corpses on the crosses for for the elements to just eat away at them. But Jesus, being a Jew, and those like Joseph of Arimathea observing Deuteronomy 21, that humiliation to his memory and his family was not to be excessive, so they pulled his body down. His body shall not remain all night on the tree, Deuteronomy 21, 23. And so you see how maddening it would be for a Jew or, or others who know about crucifixion to believe Jesus to be the Christ. It's just a crazy idea for Jews to believe that Messiah would be hung on a cross because when people died like that, it was a curse, a judgment. And for us who see Christ as who he is, we say, exactly. He took our curse. Jesus took our judgment. But this was a huge obstacle for people to climb over. They just couldn't see over this Obstacle, And as the gospel spread throughout the Roman Empire, there was this great resentment and animosity toward Christians. How do we know this? Well, one of the ways we know is graffiti. Graffiti is not something new. I know we see it all the time around us. But if you go back to ancient Roman times and, and you look at catacombs or you look at different museums, you will see ancient graffiti. And here is an example of one. This is the Aleximenos Graffito which is a a piece of ancient Roman graffiti that was scratched in plaster on the wall of a room near the the Palatine Hill in Rome. And if we ever get a chance to do a Steps of Paul tour again to Turkey, Greece, and Rome, uh, we will be able to see this blasphemous graffiti in the Palatine Museum that mocks Christians. Now there's a sketch and then there's a a drawing of it so that you can see, but many, many, many records of just Christian mockery in that time. And and that's how the cross was perceived in the first few centuries of the early church. It It was foolishness. And today, some of us wear the cross proudly. But back then, it was not thought of as a positive thing at all. It was was looked at as as an instrument of execution in the most humiliating, disgraceful, shameful way at the time. And so the graffiti artist is essentially saying, like, you know that donkey up there? That's that's your Christ, and that's you guys worshiping a, a donkey. Crucifixion, the cross... It first started out with torture. The man would be beaten, mocked, spit upon, kicked before being forced to carry the crossbeam to the place where he would be nailed to a cross. That vertical stake would already be at the site of execution, but the person would have to carry the beam to the execution site, and this is what Simon of Cyrene helped Jesus do. And we're told that Jesus was crucified at a place called the skull in verse 33. Now some scholars believe it because uh, there were remains of skulls that were there. And some believe that it's because there's a picture of a skull at the site. And and there are various reasons as why people believe what they believe. Uh, When we get a chance to go to Israel, hopefully we get a chance, you'll be able to see this site 
outside of the Jerusalem gate, and you can see a skull on the side of the hill there. And so some scholars believe it's around this area where Jesus was crucified because it's outside of the Jerusalem gate, and then there's this picture of a skull. And so again, if, if we get a chance to do a, a pilgrimage to Israel, we will go visit, and you will be shocked to see that in front of this skull is a bus station. And that's how it's been preserved because it's just a bus station with a fence around it and no one's messed with that site. Now, is it the site? Possibly. Who knows? But it might not be. But when people got to that execution site, their upper extremities were then nailed or tied to the cross beam and then it would be hoisted. They would be hoisted up to the vertical beam. Most would die a torturous death through asphyxiation, not being able to breathe, suffocation. And a way Romans would prolong the suffering is to put a piece of wood sticking out of the vertical beam near the victim's feet so the the victim could push themselves up with their feet to catch a breath as they were hanging there. Just really cruel. And to expedite death, they would break their legs. Many times we put a lot of time into the suffering of Christ. And we know that there are feature films made of this, but it just doesn't seem that the gospel writers put all that much time into the suffering of Christ because the intent of the gospel is not to garner sympathy to Jesus. The cross is meant to point us to who Jesus is and what he is really doing. And this is what the criminals help us see. Let's first take a look at the criminal who railed at Jesus in verse 39. He criticized Jesus, and he seems to be angry at Jesus. It's actually not all that unusual in terms of behavior, though, is it? Haven't you experienced people who are fearful, hurt, in pain, who are in suffering, who who take out their anger and their criticism on others, especially those that are near them? And you'd think that those who are hurting or in pain or angry, suffering, they would be the most empathetic with those who are in the same state. But so often this is not the case. So here's this guy who's directing his emotions toward Jesus. And then he loses sight of God as the criminal on the other side of Jesus points out, do you not fear God? Verse 40, right? Do you not fear God? And the criminal who rebuked the angry one points out to him, we're dying. We we are moments away from death and you're criticizing him. There are people who die angry and critical. I've been with them. I've been with people like this. They're angry at the world, angry at everybody, their family, their caregivers, their friends, God. And they say things. This criminal said, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Which is what the ruling Jews said to Jesus and what the Roman soldiers said to Jesus. And this guy is just not in good company, right? This this guy is saying the same things that they were saying. Why? They're all spiritually blind. Because if they had spiritual eyes to see they'd see that there's no way for Jesus to save them. 
if Jesus saved himself. Do you realize this? There's no way for Jesus to save you if Jesus saved himself. The criminal on the other side of Jesus is quite different. Let's just call him the repentant criminal just to separate the two guys. Matthew and Mark tell us something about this criminal that Luke does not tell us. Matthew recorded for us in Matthew 27, 44. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Mark records for us in Mark 15, verse 32. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So that repentant criminal was the same as the Jewish rulers, as the Roman soldiers, as his criminal friend on the other side, all the same. But then he changed. When? Sometime between the sixth hour until the ninth hour when there was darkness all over the land, according to Matthew 27, verse 45, and Mark 15, 33. And this is so God, that God shines so bright in darkness. Think about this. Creation came through darkness. The birth of Jesus incarnate came from the Virgin Mary's womb through darkness. Jesus resurrected from a tomb through darkness. Jesus saved this repentant criminal's soul through darkness. God does really good work through darkness. And maybe you are experiencing darkness today. And you have a choice. You have a choice today. Will you be like this angry criminal who criticizes, who just continues in his angry ways, or will you repent? Find Jesus. Find peace in Jesus. What was it during that period of darkness that kept one man angry and critical and reviling? And what was it during that period of darkness that changed the other man to bring him to a confession of faith in Jesus Christ? Well, he, he confessed his sinfulness to Jesus. Both criminals were right next to Jesus. They are both next to him. What made it so difficult for one to confess their sin? And what allowed this repentant criminal to confess while the other one didn't? They were both next to Jesus. And so you see what's easy for some to do is impossible for others to do. There are many people who would have their lives transformed if they would just confess their sins to Jesus. To be like the prodigal son and say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But it's so much easier for a lot of people, even in the greatest time of pain, suffering, fear, darkness, loss, to reject Jesus even on their deathbed. That was my grandfather-in-law, Grandpa Joe, a guy that I loved, a guy that I visited every day in his last few weeks of life, 
sharing the gospel with him on several occasions, just serving him, ministering to him. We had a great relationship. And the last time I shared Jesus with him was the last time I saw him in hospice care. And he had repeatedly rejected Jesus. Telling me, I, I don't need that. I don't need that. Those are his exact words. I don't need that. And some of you think you might change at the end of your life. That you're just going to keep doing whatever you're doing and then you'll change at the end. But there are problems with that. One of them is that you don't know if you're even going to have time to make that decision. And then from over 20 years of pastoral experience and ministering to people who don't know Christ at the end of their life, most of them still don't when they die. Most. I've had some very close people to me have deathbed conversions, but it's very rare. One of them is my paternal grandmother, a lady that I love dearly, and I look forward to seeing her again. And another one is my father-in-law. But most people I've had the opportunity to minister to at the end of their life, I found that if they've hardened their heart toward God for so many years before they die, that when they're about to die, they're incapable of confessing their sins. And the repentant criminal was able to, but the other one couldn't. And the repentant criminal even rebukes the other tries to reason with him in this darkness. Verse 40, But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due rewards of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. He not only confessed his sin, but he recognizes God's judgment on his sin. And this is really important. He says, We indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. I deserve God's judgment. We all do. But not all people believe this. Some people really think there's no judgment for, from God for their sin. Some don't even believe there's a God, so how will they believe they'll be judged by God if they don't even believe there's a God? And so they mock and they scoff and they revile, they rail, just like this criminal. But the repentant criminal saw Jesus Christ's righteousness. He says, but this man has done nothing wrong. How does he even know this? Well, Pilate found no guilt in Jesus. He got kicked over to Herod. Herod found nothing wrong with Jesus. Judas knew there was nothing wrong with Jesus. The Pharisees and Sadducees knew there was nothing wrong with Jesus. That's why they had to do things illegally with, with the way that they arrested him and trials at night and all that stuff. The centurion knew there was nothing wrong with Jesus. Everyone knew Jesus did nothing wrong, but they still crucified him. And this repentant criminal saw something in Jesus. How is it that Jesus, who did nothing wrong, is being crucified? It makes sense for us to be crucified. But why Jesus? He sees that Jesus is righteous. And if Jesus is righteous, Jesus can probably do something for sinners like himself. 
So he says to Jesus in verse 42, Jesus, remember me when, when you come into your kingdom. In, in other words, Jesus, save me. And all these other people are saying, save yourself, save yourself, save yourself. And this guy finally sees it. Jesus, save me. I know you can save yourself. Save me. And I don't know how it all works, but I know you can make me right with God even though I'm a convicted criminal. And from that point on, he was with Jesus. He's dying, and there's not much he, much he can even do with his life. But the one thing that he could do and did do was witness to the other criminal. That's all of us, isn't it? We're, we're just one sinner. Telling another sinner where to find Jesus. Pointing to the one who can save. Pointing to salvation. To be assured of salvation. Verse 43, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus is so gracious. Jesus welcomes those who are repentant, who, who have faith. Both criminals are beside him. They had sin in them. One had sin on him. But the repentant criminal didn't have sin on him anymore after he confessed to Jesus. One died without salvation, but the repentant criminal was with Jesus in paradise since he turned to the one who died for him. Jesus has no sin in him, but he took the repentant criminal's sin on him. And this is what Jesus does for those of us who repent, who have faith and trust in Jesus. We're just like the repentant criminal. Now I said there was a surprise in terms of a third criminal. I don't know if you guys thought about this, but I'd like to point out a criminal that Jesus literally saved that day. A criminal that may or may not have witnessed Jesus Christ's crucifixion, but knew his life was spared because of Jesus. And he knew Jesus died in his place, and his name is Barabbas. Barabbas. He knew Jesus saved his life. That's who got exchanged. They said, give us Barabbas. Because there was a custom that, that you know, in, in order to, to switch, you, if you really want to crucify Jesus, then, then, you know, switch it with somebody. And they said, yeah, give us that convicted criminal. We'll, we'll take him instead. And he knew Jesus saved his life. Now, we don't know if he received spiritual salvation. But we know Jesus died in his place. Jesus died in your place. And after all that we've been through this year, I hope you've come to a place where you know you need to trust Jesus. That you don't let another year, Easter, pass without Christ. There is sin in you. But you don't have to have it on you anymore because Christ has become sin for us. He has taken that on himself. Let me close with this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, you took our sin upon yourself, those who confess their sins to you and receive you as Savior and Lord. I pray, God, for softened hearts, for open minds, to hear you speak to them. I pray that your word has penetrated their spirits. They, they would sense you knocking on the door of their heart, that they would receive you. Lord, I pray for those who are so callous towards you, like this criminal that didn't repent. I pray, Lord, that that work is starting in them for them to be able to see you more clearly, that they move into the direction of the repentant criminal. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want to talk more about Christ and his salvation for you, please email me. It's just albert at regenerationweb.com. I'd be honored to talk with you about it. Next week is Easter service, and we're going to have a baptism at that time. We have a few people getting baptized. I'd love to talk you through that as well. At this moment, uh, let's take out our communion elements. Let's take communion together. Let's first take out the cracker symbolizing the broken body of Christ. We're given this beautiful sacrament to show not just what Christ did for us and who he is, but it's also a constant reminder to us that he's coming back. And so may we be ready for Jesus' return. Let me pray before we take this. Lord Jesus, I ask God for your blessing upon our church for you to work out any sorts of divisions, bitterness, resentment, especially with you and also within brothers and sisters of the church. May we sort those issues out, Lord, and not be burdened by those things that prevent us from getting closer to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you do have some resentment or bitterness towards God or, or towards a brother or sister, I, I ask that you would refrain from the sacrament for now until you posture yourself to make peace. And for those of us who are ready for that, let's take this together. Let's take the fruit of the vine, a symbol of the blood of Christ, that precious blood of Christ that was spilled for our salvation. Let's take this and remember of Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you for these beautiful signs that you've given us. May we hold true to your word. In Jesus' name, amen.